This week's TribCast is sponsored by Texas Farm Bureau. Get the latest in farm and ranch news, wildlife, and a recap of the day's markets on Texas Ag Today, the only daily ag news podcast in Texas. More at texasfarmbureau.org slash radio. And introducing Nativo Austin, downtown's first purposefully built and licensed Airbnb-friendly building. Fully furnished condos from the 500,000s. Delivery fall 2021. For more information, go to nativioaustin.com. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune Tribcast for September 23rd, 2020. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor for News and Politics at the Texas Tribune. I'm filling in for your regular host, Alexa Ura, today. This week, we've got uh, Ross Ramsey, Executive Editor. Howdy. Emma Platoff, Politics and Justice Reporter. Hi there. And Alex Samuels, Politics Reporter. Hey. Thank you guys for joining us. Um, it's been another week. It's been another crazy week. Uh, happy 2020. Uh, just when we thought the year couldn't get any worse or have any more terrible and uh, divisive things happen, uh, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died on Friday of cancer, ending a long and illustrious career. Um, her death is a massive moment for the future of the Supreme Court and politics in Texas beyond. Most immediately, most immediately, kind of the question now is what will happen with her successor? President Donald Trump says he'll announce a nominee on Saturday. That nominee is, uh, you know, spoiler alert, going to be a conservative, um, possibly further shifting the balance of power on the court. Democrats are, of course, livid. Given how Senate Republicans said after the death of Antonin Scalia that a SCOTUS nominee shouldn't be convert, confirmed in an election year. Nonetheless, Mitch McConnell has made clear he intends to hold a vote on that nominee. Alex, I want to go to you first. Uh, we have two senators in Texas. Uh, they are Republicans. They tend to like conservative Supreme Court justices. Uh, what are what are we hearing from them so far about, about what's going on here? Yeah, so both U.S. Senators John Cornyn and Ted Cruz have indicated su their support for confirming a Supreme Court justice before the election. Of course, that's 40-some-odd days away, and the process for doing this usually takes uh, more than two months, which opens the door to uh, SCOTUS potentially picking, you know, confirming her su successor um, in a Langbuck session if Joe Biden wins. And then, as you mentioned, uh, in 2016, when... Antonin Scalia died suddenly, and then President Barack Obama wanted to appoint Merrick Garland. Uh, both uh, Cruz and Cornyn at the time basically were like, no, we're not going to do that. And Cornyn's justification at the time was, you know, Obama's out the door, so let's wait until there's a new president in 2016, and then we can that person can decide uh, who's going to replace him. Ross, is it possible that there might be a little bit of hypocrisy in politics going on right now? Yeah, but, you know, I, I sort of am in the camp and you know, I know this gets some people's hackles up. But, you know, if you have an opportunity in politics or, you know, in position of power to take control of something, you take control of it. And the Republicans have the tools in place to do what it is they want to do. 
and the Democrats are squawking about it, but there's not anything the Democrats can do except squawk about it. You know, when somebody says, you know, have you no decency, they're usually saying, I'm out of tools, have you no decency? And the Democrats are out of tools here. Yeah, I, it feels like there could be a little bit of Democrats being shocked to find gambling in Casablanca here. You know, the right. it's it's not a new trend for people in D.C. to be explicitly pursuing power and sometimes not being completely honest about their motives there. I mean, I always kind of go back to the, uh, you know, my, my kind of favorite example of this where people aren't telling the truth. Everyone kind of knows they're not telling the truth. And you know, sure, they get deserve to be called out for their hypocrisy. But I think back to President Obama's evolution on gay marriage back in the day, you know, when he was talking about how he didn't support gay marriage, but his views were evolving on this. And we all just kind of looked at that and we're like, I don't think I don't think that's right. I don't think you're telling us what you really feel here. And, you know, lo and behold, a few years later, David Axelrod came out with a book and said, yeah, Obama supported gay marriage all along. He just couldn't say it because it wasn't popular, you know. In this case, as you said, we have Republicans who have the power to come out. And, you know, in 2016, they had the power to block a more liberal-minded justice from the court. And now they have the power to get one on the court. And, you know, I'm not sure we should be completely shocked that that's, that's how this is going. Really, the surprise here was that Scalia died. You know, everyone has been, you know, uh, Ginsburg has frankly been on the watch list for a while. There were a couple of other justices, you know, that are up in their years. And in 2016, Trump, uh, in particular with evangelical voters, but with Republicans in general, Trump said, you know, look, this is a race about the Supreme Court and about, you know, we have, we're trying to win the executive branch. We have, you know, some power in the legislative branch and we're trying to win some power in the judicial branch. And they've been particularly successful with uh, lower court judges on the federal side. And the Republicans, you know, when this situation comes up and the Democrats appeal to decency, point to Harry Reid and the Democrats during Bush's term who blocked so many of their lower court justices. And, uh, you know, I, I sort of feel the same way now as I felt then is, you know, if you have power, you use it. Yeah, you know, we know Democrats um, are going to kind of beat Republicans over the head by not living up to the standard that they set for themselves in 2016. And that's a um, they are 100 percent in their right to do so. And, you know, the Republicans in, in this case, you know, are going to have to live with that because it's true that they're 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 not following the same standards they set. You know, this is a situation where uh, the impacts on Texas can be significant in a lot of different ways. You know, I think we can we can talk about both kind of the legal effects of this and also the political effects of this. Emma, you're a uh, big time court watcher. Maybe you can start us off on the 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 legal effects. I mean, how how is this going to affect you know jurisprudence in Texas or Texas laws in in the future? Do you think? Well, we know that Texas is a very litigious state, right? The Texas Attorney General, um, when it was Greg Abbott, and now that it's Ken Paxton, and even in years before that, has been all about leading these major, major conservative charges, often with dozens of other states, um, and trying to land big cases at the Supreme Court and argue for them there. So if you are a Texas Attorney General who's a Republican, it's hard to argue that this isn't good news for you. Um, and whether the specific issue is going to be abortion rights or immigration, it's it's hard to see how um, another Trump appointee on the court isn't good for 
the prominent Republicans in Texas legal circles. Obviously, the um, the kind of biggest thing to watch at the moment is a Texas-led challenge to the Affordable Care Act that was already scheduled to be heard at the court uh, just a week after the election on November 10th. That's a case that actually has the potential to strike down the entire Affordable Care Act, which touches basically every aspect of the health care system and would have a huge ripple effect across the country. Um, and the experts that I'm, I'm talking to so far actually don't think that that's super likely to happen. They don't think Texas is likely to get all at once out of that case. Uh, Chief Justice John Roberts in particular is pretty concerned about making the court look super political. And this is a case that would have um, sort of spark enormous chaos, even if we weren't during a pandemic. But that's that's kind of the first test, I think, no matter what this court looks like, whether we have eight members or nine members um, in early November. I, I want to get just very briefly in the weeds on the for, uh, the uh, Affordable Care Act case, um, because this is a situation, right, where, as you mentioned, you know, the hope among people who wanted to see the law stand was that Roberts would join the four liberal justices to make a 5-4 majority, as he has in other ACA cases. Now, you know, if he does jump over, that's a 4-4 split, right? And and, in that case, that means the lower court ruling stands? Yeah, so a couple things could happen if the court splits 4-4. One is they could say, we need a ninth justice. We're going to wait until we get someone, you know, kind of just keep it internal until they do have a new member on the court. The other thing is exactly right. Like you said, the lower court opinion stands. And apologize for going into the weeds here. The, um, the most recent opinion we have on this from a lower court is from the U.S. Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in New Orleans. And what the Fifth Circuit said is that the individual mandate is unconstitutional, the individual mandate being the penalty in the law for not having insurance. And uh, the whole premise of the lawsuit is that the individual mandate is unconstitutional after Congress it to zero dollars. So there's effectively no penalty for not having insurance. And uh, Texas argues that that's such a huge part of the law. It's it's sort of essential to the functioning of the rest of the law that if that has to fall as unconstitutional, the rest of it all has to go too. And that's kind of the question where a lot of legal experts say, Texas, you're, you're kind of reaching too far. So what we have uh, established so far from the lower courts is just that the individual mandate is unconstitutional. They haven't gotten into the big analysis that would be involved in striking down the rest of the law. So if the court splits 4-4 on this, no opinion. They just send it back to the lower courts. What you have is probably a couple more years of litigation on this question before it likely ends up at the Supreme Court again. But we would not have kind of the immediate catastrophic effect of ending the Affordable Care Act in its entirety during the pandemic. Interesting. So uh, let's check in on uh, how this would play out in Texas. Um, Emma, I know you've written in the past about how uh, the state's Republican leaders have talked about how if they succeed in overturning this case, that we'll have a um, a plan to kind of replace it in Texas and help, you know, Texans manage the uncertainty that would come. So can you explain to me in great detail what that plan is? I wish that I could. Um, you're, you're absolutely right. We've heard that promise again and again. And one of the huge pieces of the Affordable Care Act that people really, really like is that um, it protects you even if you have pre-existing conditions. It says insurance companies can't reject you just because you have asthma or diabetes or some other kind of chronic illness, which a huge, huge percentage of Americans have. So we have not seen any plan 
and kind of any level of specificity come from Texas Republicans. That's something we're pushing them on right now. A colleague and I are working on a story on this. Um, but we haven't really seen anything emerge yet. There was some legislation in 2019 from um, Senator Kelly Hancock, a Republican, which would reestablish the state's high-risk pools. But that's sort of um, a Band-Aid on an elephant to try to give a broad picture of it. That, that kind of addresses one small slice of the market, but that doesn't really solve the overall problem of ending the Affordable Care Act. So more to come on that. Alex's dog doesn't want you talking about elephants anymore. <laughs> I was so proud of that metaphor. Too. <laughs> All right, let's uh, let's shift uh, the pol political ramifications of this for a minute. Um, after this happened, I was struck to see kind of how split people were on on kind of what this means for the election. Now, I'll be honest, my kind of immediate reaction to this was that this was a good thing for Republicans and for Donald Trump. Looking back at the 2016 election, you know, some of the conventional wisdom is that, uh, you know, certain conservatives who were maybe hesitant to support Trump got on board because of Supreme Court justices and throwing this back kind of to the forefront less than two months before an election might kind of bring some of those people along who may not have shown up or have been hesitant in the past. But there, you know, there are also people who who suggest that this is is going to energize Democratic voters, suburban women, folks like that, that that Democrats are kind of targeting this time around. Alex, any thoughts on how this is playing out in the first few days? Uh, uh, who who it's motivating? Who's who's really pushing this issue electorally? Yeah, I think Democrats definitely are going to try and push this as an issue going into you know November. Of course, there's nothing that they can do if Senate Republicans sort of move ahead with whoever Trump picks uh, as his to replace Ginsburg. But I think Republic or I think Democrats, like Emma mentioned, are going to try and tie this heavily to health care and be like, you know, if Republicans if it's a very conservative majority on the Supreme Court, it's going to overturn the Affordable Care Act. Of course, we have Hillary Clinton, who's speaking today at our uh, Texas Tribune Festival. And one of the things she mentions is that a lot of people are coming out of the coronavirus and they're surviving, but they now have pre-existing conditions. And she's saying, well, will you be covered if you survive COVID and have pre-existing condition if they repeal the ACA? So I think... Um, Healthcare and the focus on healthcare is going to be a huge thing that Democrats look at going into November. You know, if the Republicans thought this was a real, you know, boon to their side, the big bet would be to say, well, we're not going to name a new justice until after the inauguration. We think the people ought to choose the uh, person who's going to be president and then let them make an appointment. And if they thought that was going to go their way, that would be one of the big election arguments for return Trump to office so that he can make this appointment. Um, I think it's much more likely here because, you know, we're not seeing that. Obviously, that would be a tremendous roll of the dice because you have to win the presidency and you have to hold the Senate. But I, I, I think that, you know, um, this is much less likely to change anyone's vote than to change the intensity of some of the voters. I think a lot of people might vote on both sides, honestly. Um, who, you know, maybe were sort of in the mood to change the channel and, you know, watch what's left of the football season, then, then go to the polls. Yeah, and we saw kind of in the immediate aftermath of this, the kind of rush of, of, of donors 
coming out of the Democratic world, you know, putting money into Senate campaigns, really turning their focus to flipping the Senate in a way that, you know, I think people were always thinking about this this cycle, but it's really kind of stepped up the profile of those races as well. Right. Um, our DC reporter, Abby, had a story in the aftermath of this kind of going through the impact from Texas. And one thing that really stood out to me that was less of an obvious one was how this raises the stakes for the battle for the Texas House. You know, we've seen in this era of complete Republican dominance of, um, you know, all the levers of Texas government, one of the few ways Democrats have been able to kind of fight against laws that they don't support is by filing lawsuits that, you know, make their way through particularly the federal courts. You know, you think about uh, voter ID, certain abortion bills. We've got redistricting coming in 2020. With this possible defense maybe going away or being weakened for them, does this raise the stakes for them to gain control of the Texas House and, and gain a new way to kind of block these those kinds of ideas that are coming out of, you know, Republican leadership in the state? I think they're still going to, you know, fight for incremental power here. You know, the, the Democrats winning the House doesn't give them, obviously, control enough to pass bills, but it does give them control enough to stop bills, and that forces the Republicans into a negotiating position. But the immediate effect of the court thing, really, um, there's nothing voters can do about the appointment confirmation process if the Republicans proceed at the national level with the plan you know, to go quickly here. Voters are basically locked out of that. So the question is whether you raise money, how much money you can raise and how much you can motivate voters with an appeal to a long, to a medium or to a long-term prospect. Look, you can't fix the situation right here. But in January or in May or in 2021 or 2023, what you do today is going to have an effect. You know, um, I think the flash money raising is going to be, at least in terms of the 2020 election, the biggest effect of this of, of Ginsburg's death. I think the court point is a really interesting one, too. You know, one thing we'll never be able to measure in the aftermath of this is how many lawsuits weren't ever brought. Right. Because lawyers um, and impact litigation type folks were no longer confident that they would get any kind of relief from the U.S. Supreme Court. I remember having conversations with attorneys in that camp um, even before this happened, just following the the confirmation of Justice Kavanaugh. And they were saying, you know, I got a ruling I didn't like at the Fifth Circuit, and I don't even think it's worth bringing it to the U.S. Supreme Court because either I'm not likely to get what I want, or maybe this bad ruling that right now applies to the three states under the umbrella of the Fifth Circuit, Texas, Mississippi, and Louisiana, could actually be applied to the whole country, right? So I end up with a way worse result than I even have now. And that's something that um, we know is happening, but it's hard to say to what degree. Okay, before we move on to the next topic, let's hear a word from our TripCast sponsors. Discover downtown luxury at Fairmont Austin. Experience lavishly appointed rooms, exquisite dining, and sweeping views of the sparkling skyline. Visit fairmount.com for more. And Raise Your Hand, Texas. A strong Texas recovery requires strong public schools. Stand with our public schools in our communities and at the Capitol. Join us at raiseyourhandtexas.org slash strongrecovery. 
So it feels like a year ago now, but we had some other big news this uh, past week. For the first time in a pretty long time, Governor Abbott loosened some restrictions on restrictions, uh, coronavirus restrictions on businesses. Under the new rules, regions in Texas will be evaluated by hospital district, of which there's 22 in the state. If fewer than 15% of hospital patients in each district are coronavirus patients, then restaurants, office buildings, and retail stores will be able to operate at 75% capacity. Right now, that's 50% capacity. Uh, going through those districts in the state, there are 19 districts that were able to kind of go under these new loosened standards. It's been something that people on the right, at least, have been asking for for a while. Emma, what kind of stands out to you about the, the changes that Abbott implemented last week? Well, um, of course, we have medical experts um, who are saying this is too fast um, in in conservative and in liberal parts of the state. I had you know heard this from the Austin's interim health authority and kind of a similar comment from the health authority um, in Lubbock, who said, you know, I hope people don't think that this means their lives can be seventy five percent normal just because they can go to restaurants now at seventy five percent capacity. Um, of course, Abbott has critics kind of on the other side who are saying Texas still isn't open uh, enough. Largely, we hear that coming from the owners of bars who are saying, why can Texans go to restaurants and not go to bars? Doesn't that seem kind of arbitrary? In fact, I think Abbott would say, and, and a lot of health experts would say it's not arbitrary. You know, in a restaurant, you're probably seated. You, it's easier to keep you further away from other people. Whereas in a bar, the whole point is to sort of be mingling with people, you're probably standing, there's probably more contact, it's hard to kind of keep people far apart. Um, so as usual, a lot of criticism for Abbott. Yeah, we've, we've really seen his, him take a beating lately, kind of from both sides on this. I don't know, I was actually yesterday just clicking on some of his tweets and reading the replies, which I recognize is not the most scientific or really just... <laughs> good for your mental health way to get a gauge of what the yeah, public did, is saying. Did you feel better after that? <laughs> I did not. I regretted it immediately. Right. But I was really struck at the anger coming from both directions on this. And and this isn't just happening on his Twitter feed. I mean, we saw Steve Toth. Uh, I don't know if you guys saw this kind of putting writing a letter recently, uh, quote unquote, withdrawing his support for Governor Abbott, Toth being a a kind of empowered Texans wing, conservative uh, Freedom Caucus uh, member of the Texas House. Um, you know, and then on the other side, as you mentioned, Emma, these folks who who are saying it's too much too soon. I think as someone who's watching this, uh, and, and Alex's dog is mad too. And when you've lost Alex's dog. <laughs> um, Popular but, opinion out the window. <laughs> yeah, exactly. As someone who's watched these restrictions and kind of try to take track of things. One thing that I is does feel different about this is that there's kind of a trigger point here, you know, is is um, if you reach this point, then the restrictions get pulled back or loosened, depending on where things are going, which is a little bit different in the past. And also we're seeing, you know, him really kind of lay down a marker and saying that hospitalizations are the the metric that we're really watching here. It's, we've seen it kind of go back and forth at times between hospitalizations and uh, 
the uh, uh, positivity rate in cases. So, you know, it, it's a slight shift. I don't think we're going to see a whole lot. You know, one of the big questions whenever you go from 50 to 75 is how much is that going to change? Because if people don't want to go eat in restaurants, then can you even get to 75% capacity? But, uh, I mean, we are seeing at least a, a slight change in philosophy, it feels like, from Abbott here. You know, it turns... Yeah. This, go ahead, Emma. I was just going to say the the trigger points, these thresholds you mentioned, that's something experts have been calling for for a while, um, that there should be some kind of scientific number that we can point to and say, this is why we're doing this or not doing this. That's not to say that everyone thinks the numbers he's chosen are the right numbers, right? And we've also seen him talk about metrics in the past, like the positivity rate. He identified 10% um, of you know the tests that are performed in the state coming back positive as kind of a warning flag number. We've seen reopening happen over and despite that number. So I think it remains to be seen exactly how closely we stick to these thresholds. He went from a leading number to a lagging number. You know, positivity rates, if you're measuring them right, tell you how many people are testing right now for spread of the disease. And you can say, you know, well, right now this is happening. If you choose hospitalization rates, you're waiting for the disease to incubate and to show itself, which is a two or three week lag. And so you find out, you know, it's, you know, it's like turning an ocean liner. You push the button and you say, turn. You say, reopen these businesses, reopen these schools, reopen these colleges, and let's have a couple of football games. And then you sit back and wait two or three weeks to see what happened. And then you respond and you sit back and wait two or three weeks to see if that worked. And, you know, in the meantime, as you as you pointed out in your lead in, you know, everybody's screaming at you from both sides. Um, it's a really imprecise way to do this. It, it has the advantage of at least they've cited a... a metric that they're going to keep their eye on this time. Um, but it's still, you know, a little bit sluggish and a little bit unresponsive and, and you know, a little bit risky in the run up to a major election. Yeah. I think just to, to Ross's point, hospitalization is definitely a lagging number. But I think also of the metrics we've been looking at, they're one of the most reliable, right? We know that we're not catching all the positive cases in the community with testing. We know that we're undercounting deaths. Um, but if someone is in the hospital and they're being evaluated for whether they have COVID, like we likely aware, you know, we're likely to capture that a little bit more. The other point that I'd make on this and, and one concern that some experts I've spoken to have is just that we're kind of going through a major experiment in the state already right now with the reopening of public schools and of universities. And a lot of folks think, why not let that go first, right? Why why don't we have two months of school? and see where we are and then decide whether, you know, we can allow 25% more people into Benihana. Like maybe that should go first before we reopen anything else. So a lot to watch. So you're basing all this on an onion, on an onion smokestack. I, I feel like I pick on a different <laughs> restaurant during every trip cast. So my apologies. <laughs> Very good. Okay, so let's one one last thing I wanted to talk about before we end this thing is uh, Alex, you wrote a story about voter registration last week. Yesterday was National Voter Registration Day, the deadline to register to vote in Texas, October fifth. Um, the good news, kind of seen from the numbers, is that there's a record number of voters registered in Texas this year. The bad news is that Texas is a growing state, so there's pretty much always a record number of Texas voters 
registered to vote. And as you pointed out, Alex, in your story, the rate of growth is slower this year than it has been in past years. Why is that happening? Uh, yeah, so as you mentioned, for the first uh, seven months of the year, registrations were down 24% compared to that same time frame in 2016. So the pace of registration has slowed a lot in part because of the pandemic. You know, driver's licenses, offices were closed, and that's a big place where people go to update their voter registration. You know, people weren't necessarily going on college campuses and registering a bunch of young people, going to concerts. You know, those events weren't happening. So People were trying or groups who register voters were basically having to find innovative ways during the pandemic to register new people to vote, whether that was online registration or not. Sorry, not online registration, but basically sending voters like a pre-filled out card saying here, mail this back and you can register that way or going directly to you know your county registrar and doing that. But of course, it's a lot harder to vote when you're not supposed to be talking to strangers and leaving your house really. That's right, when one of the things you mentioned there is that Texas is one of the few states without online voter registration, which mm -hmm. would make things a lot easier this time around. Um, Ross, this touches on you know something that I personally have been thinking about a lot lately, which is the kind of lack of a democratic ground game in Texas. You see a little bit more of this on Republicans. They've shown a little bit more willingness to go knock on doors, um, you know, hat hold in-person events, things like that. And Democrats are by and large completely avoiding that. And it, you know, it, it adds another uncertainty to an incredibly uncertain election about how much, how much will that impact their ability to convince their voters to to get out and vote. Um, is, is this something do you, that you think Democrats in the state should be pretty concerned about? Well, yeah, they're messing with something that's, you know, that they've been fine tuning for decades. And that's kind of, you know, what starts as a knock and drag operation where you knock on someone's door and drag them to the polls, or you go to a neighborhood and you drive six people to the polls, or you run vans, all of those kinds of things that are, you know, sort of fundamental retail voting operations both parties do it but you know it's uh it's a it's a big deal in the democratic party as you say and if the other party's doing it and you're not then you know you potentially could have a turnout problem you've got to figure out a way to actually motivate the people who say that they support your ideas to go to the polls and to turn those beliefs into votes um i think one of the one of the giant questions in any election whether there's a pandemic or not, is who's going to show up. The question in this election is who is going to show up or not because of the pandemic. And, mm -hmm. you know, who's, who's nervous about that and, and how much um, it affects voter turnout that the parties, like you say, aren't, aren't doing necessarily all of the things or sometimes any of the things that have gotten their voters to the polls in the past. That's a, that's a giant question mark. Right, and there's, there's different ways of looking at it because... You know, if you if you look at the the demographic breakdown of voters in the state, the older voters, the the voters you would expect to be more at risk for this kind of thing, tend to lean Republican. Of course, if you're over 65, you qualify to vote by mail. But then we've seen all of the concerns raised by Republicans about voting by mail and all that. And then on the other side, you've got the young Democrats who maybe it seems like are 
are more concerned about the coronavirus, but are also in less of an at-risk group. So, you know, among the millions of uncertainties, it's it's something I think we'll just have to wait and, and see what happens. It's this bizarre idea that, you know, the Republicans are telling people to be afraid of voting by mail, and they're the ones who most benefit by it. And the Democrats are telling people to be afraid of showing up to vote, and they're the ones who most benefit by it. You know. That's um, right. Great. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, well, I think that does it for this week. Thank you to Ross, Emma, and Alex for joining us. And thank you to our sponsors, the Texas Farm Bureau, Nativo, Fairmount, Austin, and Raise Your Hand, Texas. We'll see you next week. Whatever you do, I have to talk you